Hello and welcome to Unhedged, a candid discussion of markets and mechanisms. I'm your host, Frank Troyce, a 25-year-plus veteran of the markets, both bull and bear, and regrettably, I have the hairline and gray hair to prove it. Joining me on the show are an eclectic group of participants, ranging from hedge funds, portfolio managers, insurance companies, brokerages, and even as diverse as winemakers and theologians. All of us asking the same question at the end of the day that we all do when we're watching TV, listening to the radio, or reading a newspaper, why? Unhedge is a weekly podcast, and on occasion, we may be on as many times as two to three times a week, depending upon the subject matter and current events. You can subscribe to Unhedge through iTunes, and as always, your feedback is appreciated, both good and bad. So let's get started with Unhedged. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Unhedged. I'm your host, Frank Troyce, and we're on our second segment here with Mr. Douglas Borthwick. Doug, uh, what should investors be doing now? What should folks be looking at in, in Q2 of this year? Is there anything else that's different relative to some of the themes we've talked about before? Well, there's a couple of things that I'm, I'm excited about and interested in. I think that the Chinese trade deal is is much larger than the market expects in terms of its influence on where stock prices can go in the future. I think that investors and a lot of banks are saying it's all priced in now. Don't worry about it. And I think that that's that's misplaced. You know, I think that there's one thing that will happen when this trade deal goes through is I think that you'll see a big uptick in you know in metals like copper, and uh, you know looking at copper miners, I think is is a very interesting way to to kind of play the Chinese trade. And, and, and I've, I'm certainly been watching that. I think that in terms of where things can go, you know, is this going to be good news for Apple? I think that that's going to be obviously very interesting. Um, and, and are there going to be in, inroads into China that haven't been there before? So I think that's also very interesting. But I think that the, the net is over the next couple of months, you know, what we're really looking at in the US is this huge field of democratic uh, contenders for the uh, to, to run against president trump and that's i think going to be taking up much of the airwaves because you've got i, I, think, I don't know maybe there's 25 or 30 of 30 folk running right now and they're all going to eat each other apart before they end up battling trump and it, i think it's quite clear that trump's going to end up winning 20, 2020 as well regardless of who's going to run against him and I think that that's, you know, probably the most interesting thing. There's also a discussion about it. Is Biden going to run? If Biden runs, Bloomberg won't. If Biden doesn't, Bloomberg may. And I think that's that's uh, very interesting. But I think that Bloomberg may be well known in, in New York, but he's not known throughout the rest of the country. And there's also been a pushback against billionaires running, obviously because of Trump. But that was, that showed through with the Starbucks CEO when he ended up on his on his first campaign stop and, and it essentially became very sheepish afterwards. So, you know, I think that, that folks expect Trump to win again. And I'm not sure that that's priced into the market, but I think that folks think of Trump as being you know, market friendly. And the Democrats have sort of been pushed into a corner over the last couple of months in that they're jumping on ideas put forward by, you know, by 
the, the new Congress people that are very excited about socialist type policies and are being marketed as such. And as the Democrats end up taking up these socialist policies, for example, 70% tax on, 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 uh, on folks after they reach a certain level, then, uh, then folks are going to turn around and say, you know what, the Democrats have just lost their way here and the Republicans will win again. And, and once again, you, you've said a lot there, and, and let, let's break some of that down into pieces. If, if we go back to the investment themes that you were talking to, um, you know, as, as we look at the, the U.S. dollar, as we look at commodities, as we look at uh, global equities and, and, and the bond market, um, let's focus for a second on, on global equities. So, you know, are we, in fact... Again, because we one thing we haven't talked to is the expectation still by many economists that in 2020 that there should be some some vestige of a recession that's appearing. So are, are you and I now saying that that in fact that that's not there? So post a trade deal, which I agree with you, it is going to happen. But are we now saying that post a trade deal, that recession will still occur or will there be enough momentum, enough of a bit in the market to make uh, a 2020 recession not even feasible? I, I think that the Fed president has made it quite clear that that the Fed's standing ready, willing, and able to make sure that a recession doesn't happen. And uh, you, you, let's just look at what, what sort of firepower does the, does the Fed have? Well, they got 225 basis points right now, and that's not so bad. But they're also now talking about, you know, what else is in the toolkit. And San Francisco's president, Mary Daly, just came out and she said, look, you know, you could imagine ex executing policy with your interest rate as your primary tool and the balance sheet as a secondary tool but one that you could use more readily, that's not decided yet. In other words, the Fed's already talking about the balance sheet and what they can do with that. And they could either turn around and say, you know what, we're going to stop unwinding the balance sheet or we're going to wind the balance sheet right back up again. So I think that the Fed's got plenty of room in case something was to go wrong. Remember, we've got 225 basis points that we could cut to go back to zero. When the Asian crisis hit, the Fed only cut by 75 basis points. ECB's talking mm -hmm. about these TLTROs which we talked about in the last session. But also, you know, the PBOC, what's really interesting there is the PBC's got two interest rates. They've got one, that, the one-year lending rate, that's at 4.35%, last set in 2015. But the interbank market rates are on 305 to 3.3%. So it's like, you know, we expect fully that as the Chinese currency starts to strengthen, that interest rates in China, the, the one-year lending rate will start starting pushing down, pushing down, pushing down, which will then spur more loan, more lending or more borrowing, certainly, in China. So I think central banks are, are ready, willing, and able in case something was to happen. But I think that the market got spooked about the balance sheet because the Fed didn't understand it, its, its main impact. And I think the Fed now gets it. And I think the Fed's going to be very, very wary about the balance sheet going forward. And, and to your point, I mean, the we, have, we don't even have to look any further than what happened in, in January, where where the that enormous bid that came in once Powell reframed expectations around to your point both rates and and the balance sheet. So, I do agree with that. It, it the but but at the same time, when we look at global growth, are 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 we looking at it continuing at the the current pace, or are we are we looking at for twenty nineteen? Will we see this gradual slowdown in in global growth? I don't think we'll see a gradual growdown. Uh, sorry, slowdown. I think I think what we're looking at is. You're looking at a, a global economy that's trying to restructure itself. Certainly, China's a big exporter. The U.S. wants to become a bigger exporter. China has to give up a little of the export business and, and, and give, give the U.S. some more. 
Now, that doesn't mean there's going to be a slowing down. What it means is there's going to be a redistribution of growth. And I think that we'll see sort of steady growth around these low anemic levels, as opposed to you know, expecting a big drop down or a big move up. Now, what's really important in the U.S. and with equities especially is that, you know, there's so many pension funds in the U.S. And I'm sure you could you could talk about we could talk about this for, for, for days, but there's so many pension funds in the U.S. that are still underwater. And you know what? What the U.S. doesn't want is to have equities take a big dive. The pension funds then to realize they're in big, big trouble, and that's even more of a problem for the U.S. So if you want to keep folks with a pension happy, you keep stock markets bid, you keep things moving up in the way they are, and the Fed sitting on the sidelines, very, very dovish, and uh, making sure that everyone understands: don't worry, we've got your back. And I think that's definitely the message we're getting from the Fed. And the Fed isn't just thinking about the U.S. You know, the Fed obviously has two mandates, but it has a third mandate that they that's never spoken about, and that is global stability. And if you look in the in the Fed statements of late, they're including China. They're talking about how they're concerned about China, concerned about you know Europe. And the reality is, they're going to do everything they can if if you're, if China was to to weaken somewhat because of all of this uh, th- this uh, restructuring, then you can you can bet your bottom dollar that the Fed's going to end up cutting rates or going back into quantitative uh, easing. As part of that, uh, and, and I think that's a very, very important point you brought up in regards to, to global stability. And, and I think the, the continuity of policy from the Fed and Powell's ability for, for the most part to be seen as independent and, and objective from the administration has been crucial. How, let's dive just a little bit deeper on the US side. I mean, there, there's still the argument there that the majority of Americans, which, which, you know, since the World War II, it was it was the American consumer that was always seen as as driving growth. Um, have they come out of the the crisis, or, or are they still looking at the same balance sheet damage that they had when when the you know when the crisis occurred back in 2010? I mean, is the American consumer back? Are they seeing wage growth? Are they in a better position now than they were ten years ago? I don't think they are. I think they've been surviving for the last 10 years. I mean, you, you, you can look through Manhattan at, at, you know, at the apartment prices and how they're all coming off. Look at London, how prices are all coming off. I think real estate's a really good barometer of how folks are doing. And you can't drive through Connecticut without seeing for sale signs every two or three houses. And so what that tells me is that the consumer has been limping along, but they're not enjoying the wealth that they had before or the wealth effect because housing prices haven't really gone up that much since since the crisis happened since 2010. And so folks aren't and, and, and bonuses haven't been jumping up to higher levels. I mean, certainly folks are getting bonuses again, but they're not they're not getting bonuses like they used to. And I think that folks in the tech industry, if you're hoping for your big payday with your unicorn going public, I think folks have dialed back in their expectations there, too. So. I think that folks are they're they're surviving. They're buying cheaper goods. You know, you just look at retail sales and how retail sales are collapsed in the U.S. But Walmart's doing really, really well. I think that's a good example of the U.S. consumers shifting their spending from buying luxury goods or buying goods at full price and, and turning around and saying, you know what, I need something at a discount. And I think Americans have really turned into great folks at finding discounts and and, and doing that just in order to survive because they have lifestyles that are consistently higher than what they're they're earning. And that's a very American thing for sure. And and to your earlier point, one of the one of the statistics that I love going back to and we we calculate this every year, but 
to your point regarding the the pension funds being underwater, you know, in in uh, a very simple calculation, and I would encourage our listeners to do it, is you just take an eight percent return, go back to where the Dow Jones was in 2010. and if you just extrapolate out to today, you know, we technically for these pension funds to be in alignment with their expectations ten years ago, they the Dow would need to be at thirty four thousand today for them to quote unquote be at break even. So to your point, the the you know, we're still underwater in, in, in that regard, and we still have a problem uh, with that. And and just to 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 your point again, so if we're looking at slower global growth, um, one of the interesting dynamics out here that we've seen is that with all the talk and rhetoric about China and, and trade, it's been interesting to see folks start to take a really hard look at their supply chains. And one of the countries that ironically, but, but I also think... Uh, on purpose, has been Vietnam, where where Vietnam now has been a huge beneficiary of this, where two years ago, people were talking about just the sheer amount of construction and building that was occurring. Now, because of China, you know, folks are now taking a serious look and have moved their supply chains to, uh, to Vietnam. I don't think it's any coincidence that this next summit is in Vietnam uh, between uh, uh, North Korea and the States. You know, I mean, do you see as a consequence, I mean, as part of what's happening with China in terms of slower growth, the fact that they did succeed in, in, or, or have made great progress moving people from an agrarian society into you know, a, a more white collar framework and that these supply chains and the value proposition of China inevitably has to move to these other countries? Or do you see that more as just a, a short term effect? I think there's a short-term effect. There's lots of manufacturing opening up in Vietnam, but also in Europe and Turkey. You know, Turkey's doing very, very well in terms of the manufacturing base that they're building and exporting out as well. I think they're big winners in this U.S. versus China trade talk uh, discussion. I think that, you know, keeping IP sacred is something that is very important to U.S. Uh, companies. And, you know, if they go to Vietnam and they get assurances that it'll be kept that way, then that's certainly something that they'll probably look to do. I think that though, you know, the, the closure of Apple building uh, I, iPads in China probably isn't going to affect most of the Chinese population. And they have done a very good thing of taking an agrarian society, moving them into from really a, a, a very lowly existence to a, a middle class and creating a middle class and a middle class that then wants to buy things. And so now you've created internal demand. And China can actually come up with that demand themselves, or they have to go out there and become a very important trading partner to other countries and get their, their, their goods from there. And I think China's doing a very good job with that. I can't really fault what China's doing, because what China's doing is the same as what the U.S. is trying to do. You know, China's all about China first, and the U.S. is about U.S. first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's like even like the, the, the latest Graham Allison book, you know, the my, my hope and expectation is that there will be an outcome that's positive for both, and and that it won't resolve in a uh, or result in a larger conflict. And and along and alongside that, I think it's interesting if if you could talk a little bit, you know, following this whole thing with YY and the CFO and the, you know, and all this talk about spying. When it, one of the other interesting takeaways from the meeting that we had here in Singapore was, you know, hearing uh, folks who are in this space basically say, nope, this is all about five G. To your point, uh, them saying, you know, that China actually is way ahead of the U.S. in in terms of doing this. 
And right now, the only way that the U.S. can slow this down is is to do what they're doing, start arresting people and making accusations, you know, with the hope that um, the U.S. can, you know, slow down this market leader and slow down China. And I was just curious as to your thoughts on that as well, where where this clearly is another area that's strategic to the United States, but but the states have lost the advantage here. Well, you know, I think that a lot of folks see 5G as being, it's sort of like the introduction of the internet and that. 5G is going to change how we do things as we know it much, much faster, greater bandwidth. It's going to be a big, big changer in terms of how we do business today. Now, going on from there, you've got YY that sits there and they're the biggest uh, guys in 5G and that's fantastic. But if YY products are in everything and there's the, the possibility of you having some sort of technology on your desk or somewhere, but there's a possibility it could be used for spying purposes by a foreign government. That's obviously of concern to the United States. But I think one of the biggest reasons you saw the arrest was really because the American people don't necessarily understand what IP theft is. So it's a terribly important thing for Apple and for other companies like that. But it's not really something that the average consumer is sitting there worrying about every single night. You know, oh, China's you know, taking our IP. But by doing the arrest, they managed to kind of throw out all of these different issues in the press and then the press starts talking about it. Normally they don't want to talk about things that Trump does want to talk about, but now they kind of have come behind Trump in this respect by saying, look, you know, these guys have been doing something that isn't necessarily good and uh, something needs to be done about it. So now there's support for Trump for trade negotiations with China when before folks were like pointing it out and saying, look, this is hurting our soybean uh, farmers because you know, China put a hard line down and the China, sorry, the U.S. put a hard line down and the Chinese stopped importing soybeans. Well, guess what? They're importing soybeans now more than they ever did before. But now folks, instead of complaining to Trump, are now saying, yeah, he's doing the right thing. So there's, mm-hmm. there's some you know, tremendous political advantages. And and in, in the spirit of, uh, you know, fiction becoming truth, one of one of the books and that we've been talking about and alluding to, and we'll have a link on our website, um, is the book Ghost Fleet. And I bring this up, and this is going to sound like a totally bizarre segue, but it, it actually came up yesterday as well. When when folks were talking about, you know, kind of the the military policy alongside, you know, the, the political process, and there was a subtle announcement made a few months ago that the Chinese had actually implemented a railgun and and uh, and this didn't hit the press in the U.S., but it was all the news out here. And, and the railgun was actually popularized in uh, the book Ghost Fleet. And for our listeners, the, the the concept is that rather than it being a missile that explodes, a railgun actually just simply shoots a metal object, and the metal object is going at supersonic speed. So the the idea that there's no radar system that you can interfere with, it's just a big bullet that that's going really really fast. And it was fascinating, Doug, because as folks were talking about that, they said that, you know, this brings up the issue that, you know, this asymmetric warfare where, where you know, obviously the U.S. has a nuclear deterrence where they, we could just light it up and destroy the world if, if they chose to. But in terms of these tactical deployments that, you know, concepts like the railgun, the, the ability with 5G to actually have much more of an edge in that, the, the whole issues of cybersecurity that it makes the fleet, the Pacific fleet, which was always the big deterrence, effectively obsolete. And as negative as that all sounds, it was interesting. One of the takeaways from the discussion was folks were saying that, well, it, it actually just really bears the fruit that 
China really doesn't have any imperial aspirations. They're just saying, you know, we don't want the fleet there. We don't want the planes coming in. At the same time, we know if we provoke you enough, you'll just light up the missiles. And, you know, we don't want that as an outcome. Uh, but that in this asymmetric process, the small things of 5G, to your point, IP and supply chains become really, really critical. Well, you know, there, there's two ways to win military wars. And one is to come up with the best technology. And the other one is to have just a lot of people. And, and you know, the railgun is one thing for China. But, you know, Russia's also got their supersonic uh, weapon right now that apparently is so fast that no one can touch it. And they're also discussing apparently with Venezuela. You know, there's been lots of articles about this that they've talked about putting in a Russian base in Venezuela. Well, if you had a Russian base in Venezuela and a supersonic weapon sitting there, the U.S. would have no defense whatsoever, which is obviously why the U.S. is fighting to get Maduro out and to get Guerra in. So I think that you know, it, it's Venezuela, as much as we, we could, we'll talk about Asia here, but look, Venezuela is also you know, a powder keg or a missile crisis, a Cuban missile crisis coming again just in, our, in the U.S.'s backyard, it's causing a lot of concern over here, much as I think you know, Chinese railguns are in Asia. Well, Doug, why don't we do this? Why don't we take a quick break? Do you have a time for just one last segment, time permitting? Yeah, of course. All right, so let's do that. So for our listeners, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with Douglas Porthcote. Stay tuned. 